0: Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to Sheerclarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Jay, Kevin McHugh here, the host of Sheer Clarity. Happy to have another great episode for you. Uh, today I have a great leader. His name is Gareth Vaughn. He is the president and CEO of AM Heagley Company. Can't wait to cut him loose and let him talk and get you intrigued by who he is and what he's accomplished at the company. I also wanted to shout out that he's right here in my backyard. He's in Cleveland. So welcome to the podcast, Gareth. Thank you. Glad to have you here. The way I like to do these is I like to let people know a little bit about how you and I are connected. I've known you 10 years, and we've become very good friends. And in that 10 years, I spent time working with his YPO forum. That's how we met. And then later, he brought me here in the company to do some teamwork and team development. And I had a wonderful time learning about the company. I had a chance to get to know Bruce Heagley. Bruce passed away about, a, I guess it's a year and a half now, maybe. Right. Kind of thrust Gareth into a very powerful scenario. We were actually, now that I'm thinking about it, in one of our management retreats. Yep. And you got called out of the room. You left the room and you came back in and said Bruce had passed away. That was a moment. Yes, it was. That was a moment maybe we'll come back to that when we talk a little bit about your challenges. And I always like leaders talking about when they screwed up the most or when they faced the biggest challenge. That's where the learning is. Before I do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about the company, brag on it, because you have some very cool people here. And I'll shut up and you can explain to whoever's listening a little bit about who A.M. Higley is. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. So
1: the Albert M. Higley Company is a construction company with our roots in general contracting, having started in 1925 by Al Higley Jr., pouring concrete, laying block walls, and doing carpentry. Over the years and the decades, we've been lucky enough to be involved in some of the most iconic construction projects in Cleveland projects like the Coast Guard station at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River, the old Art Deco Greyhound station downtown. For those that were around a couple of decades ago, the Bond department store that was downtown. And probably one of the more recent iconic projects would be the Eaton Corporation's walled headquarters just uh, east of Cleveland. So over the years, we've certainly grown. We have narrowed our focus or at least our focus has evolved from during the 40s when we were very very focused on industrial and munitions plants and buildings that supported the war effort following that really a lot more education and higher education and today we're really focused on health care private and higher education high-end hospitality and high-end corporate work, we have evolved a company that was worked about within about fifty-mile radius outside of Cleveland to one now that's in five states, and about ninety percent of our work comes from repeat clients. We're at about one hundred and forty professionals and seventy carpenters and laborers doing
0: about three hundred million dollars worth of work a year. Wow! 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 So you know, I had a decision to make when. I started getting these podcasts rolling again. I took a little break early on from the COVID thing and we're back with our interviews. And, you know, I had a discussion with someone about, do I bring up the COVID thing? You know, someday this will be behind us. But I was encouraged to do that because I don't know who will listen to a podcast a year from now, it won't matter. But people are listening now. And I have been asking on my interviews for people to give us, Just a little idea of how it affected A.M. Higley, how it affected you, what you guys ended up doing as a response to it, and just you know riff on that for a little bit because it's hitting everyone differently. So I have this broad range of responses, and I feel like the more I get, the more I might be able to help people when they hear the range of things that people have done to survive or to thrive in the middle of it.
1: Yeah, so for us, when COVID really started, which I want to say it was a middle of May, I think, seems so long ago now, we started with reaffirming what our commitments were. And our commitments were to our people and to the community in which we work and to obviously the ownership of the company. So starting with the people, we committed to everybody that we were going to continue to employ them, despite the fact that at that time, everything had shut down, all our projects had shut down. And obviously, we can't necessarily build things from home. We actually have to be out there on construction sites. So it started with making that commitment and accepting that there are going to be losses. So we did that very, very early. We also maintained our commitment to the community that we were going to continue whatever our philanthropic plans were throughout because the community itself needed that money more than they did prior to COVID. And then thirdly, obviously, we've got this commitment to the ownership. So what are we going to do to benefit the bottom line through this time? And what we chose to do was to use the time to execute on some plans, fix some problems, try out some ideas, things that we had talked about for years but never had time to do, things that would always come up in meetings, but you know they'd always drop their way down the priority list, some of them still simple things and some of them more complex. And we decided to engage every single individual in the company in helping to solve a myriad of different opportunities, if you will, and make us a better and more profitable company coming out of it. And all of these things stem from having a true vision of where we want to be and not changing that vision because this new obstacle, COVID, had been put up in front of us. We went through the same thing with the recession. I'm gonna say COVID was a little more difficult in some ways, but we went through the same thing in the recession. Talking
0: about 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah.
1: 2010 when our profit or our revenues went from 160 million down to 80 million. We had to have a similar mindset. That's been the way we work. We truly believe if we've got something that works really well, a vehicle or a machine, if you will, that works really well, you can't control what you're going to drive on every day. You know, you might have the most high-performing car, but some days you're going to drive a really rough road. (laughs) road. It's not going to feel real good. But it doesn't stop you driving that road and believing that when you get to the end of the road that it's going to smooth out a little bit. And it kind of falls in line, too, with the opposite of that, which is, we're not big believers of when the road is smooth, you should just take off with wild kind of abandon, you know, it's, you have a plan and you work the plan and you keep focused on the plan and things will push you
0: from side to side, but you, you always come back to it. Headed in the right direction. And you talked about a 20 year plan at one time. When you articulate that Do you articulate it to the company? Is that something it's you and the owners are thinking about or when you make that reference? Yeah. So when
1: I go out 20 years,
0: it could be 20, 30, 40, 50.
1: It's really more of a vision of who we are and what we want to be. It's not so much a, you know, here's how much revenue we're going to do in 20 years or
0: here's how many states we're going to be in. It's really about, you know, what do we want to look like? Yep. Are you able to articulate that in words? Can you, does that have something that you can describe? Because 20 years is a long time, you know, and when you speak in the 20, 30, 40 year vision, when I'm working with clients, you know, we do a lot of work and we'll have retreats, you know, crafting vision statements and mission statements and all this good stuff. But when I hear a 20 or 30, how does it sound when you articulate it? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of the business vision, which has a much
1: shorter timeline on it, but the longer timeline on it is really to positively impact the communities in which we work. So that vision never really changes, just the number of communities or the geography of those communities or the number of people that we serve grows. So we look at the company and making money a result of doing a few things really well. One, be taking care of our people. Two, growing our company. And three, serving our ownership. So we flip making money on its head, if you
0: will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like it. I like the metaphor of the rough road, um, keeping the machine moving. And I remember one of your value statements was about the people. Walk me through those again, you know, because I want to hear them again because you'll hit the one that I – No, I'm thinking of
1: Yeah, we've had five values for ninety five years. How people are our greatest asset, ethics in everything we do, striving for excellence in everything we do, meeting our commitments and respect for everybody. And we look at everything we do through a lens of those values. And if we have a client with a great opportunity that we don't think fits those values, we would choose not to work for them.
0: Yeah. Got it. So as you look at this COVID thing and you engage the people, it sounds like there was a reciprocal feeling to it. Like you guys came to them and said, this is what we're going to do. This is what the values are telling us to do. We're going to keep everyone employed, even if we're going to lose money, but we want something back. And that resulted in you saying, we're going to dust off that big list of someday, and you actually started getting some of those things done.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I always tell people when we're interviewing people to work here is this is both the easiest and the hardest company to work for. Easiest because you'll never be asked to do something that you will regret or feel guilty about. You'll always be supported, and you'll feel like you're part of a family. But the commitments, the responsibilities that come and working here are no different than with your family. That there are some days where, you know, you're arguing with your brother or your uncle from 100 miles away is in jail and needs you to bail him out. There are some tough days, and we expect a ton in return.
0: Yeah, yeah. So tell me, you know, a little bit more about you. I mean, I do know your story, but I love it. It's a great story, and I want you to share it again with me about growing up, where you came from, how you came here, and how you got connected with this job. I love just your history. So my father is Welsh, 100% Welsh,
1: and my mother is 100% English. Back in the 60s, they did what a lot of people from Britain were doing, and going and finding work around the world, and they both happened to be in Cape Town, South Africa. They met each other in Cape Town, South Africa. They got married. They had me in Cape Town, South Africa, and they divorced there. So my mother was pretty adamant that she did not want me to be educated in South Africa. You know, this is during apartheid, and the way white British people were educated, was in a fashion that did not fit with her values. So we moved back to London. She was a nurse, single mother, had no money. We lived in a, what you would term here in the United States, a projects in South London. It was pretty rough. We lived there for 10 years in government housing. And then the government came up with a program where you could buy shares in a house. So you could start off with 10% of the house. And eventually own the house. Interesting. So she qualified for that and was able to buy a house. And it's interesting that growing up, the things that I thought made you either rich or in a different class than me—one was if your bathtub was not in the kitchen, if you had a garage—you know, there was just some interesting uh, things that now it's like that's crazy. But those were what would go through my head. So I went to school outside of the area to elementary school because my mother did not want me to go to the local school. So I went to a Church of England school that was a few miles away. I was the only kid in the whole school with a divorced parent. So if you can think of the stigma associated oh, with that you're killing me man. And then I went to a what is now a very prestigious high school but I somehow found my way into this school did okay, not great. I remember when I was 15 or 16, the headmaster coming to me and saying, you know, you really need to go find a job because you're not going to be able to stay here for the next two years. Oh my God. And, you know, my mother wasn't having any of that. So I continued head down and worked at it. And when I was 17, he came back to me and he said, you know, you really need to go find a job because you won't make it into college. So I did get into college with the lowest grades of anybody in the school, and at the end of the first year, I was number one in the whole school,
0: because I worked for In the college? Yeah,
1: yeah. Wow. My bachelor's degree is in civil engineering, and when I was 19, I decided to come over to the United States for three months with some friends. This is the start of many stories, I guess, but I met a young lady (laughs) who... is now my wife, or has been my wife for 25 years now. But I came over three months, I went back, and then I came over for another three months, went back, and then I got a scholarship to go to the University of Cincinnati, which happened to be where this young lady went to school also, by the way. My whole plan was to be here a year, and then to go travel the world. And So, what is it, 30 years later or something like that, I'm still here, and I've got three kids and i've been married 25 years god bless you brother (laughs) that that
0: is the best that is the best so when you were here tell me how you got connected with am higley and you know walk me through the career that led you to sit here in the corner office as the main kahuna so i would work for a company out of cincinnati
1: and i always remember i was there a week and one of the vice presidents came up to me one day said what are you doing next week and I said, Well, what do you mean? What am I doing? He said, Well, what are you doing next week? I said, Whatever you tell me. And he said, Okay, then you're going to go to Columbus next week. And I asked for how long. He said, You're moving there, which I find is so funny because I cannot talk people into going to projects out of town, but yet you just did what you were
0: told back then. Right. You know? That's right.
1: So he asked me how much money I would need to move. And I was thinking, Maybe I could swing for a thousand. Could I get a thousand? I got $1,000 to move, and I, I thought I'd hit the jackpot <laughs> until the guy that followed me a week later, a month later, told me he got 7000 yeah. <laughs> I never said I was any good at business. but uh. So I worked for this company. I worked my way to what's called Project Executive, and I was out on major projects, running projects in the field. And I got a call from a headhunter who said this company out of Cleveland was looking to start an office in Columbus. I think I was 29 or 30 at the time. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'd be interested. And he said, well, I'm not asking you. I was calling to see if you knew anybody. If you knew. <laughs> yeah, because you, you clearly don't have the experience. And I said, well, I can't argue with that. Right. So about half an hour later, he called back and said, well, they want to talk to you anyway because they really like the company that you're at. And figured if you're there, you're the kind of person.
0: Oh, yes.
1: I met Bruce Higley. first day I met him, I had muddy boots on and muddy jeans on, and that was our first interview. And we talked for about three or four months. And towards the end, when it started to get interesting or serious, I said, if we get to a point where you want me to work for you, can you please not tell me how much you'll pay me? Because I didn't want to get pulled out of where I was at for money. I loved where I was at. I wanted to get pulled out for an opportunity. And I said, I'm going to trust you'll pay me well if you decide to go down the road. So on March 3rd of 2001, the day my daughter was born, I got a call. I was sitting in the hospital from Bruce Higley and he said, I'd like to meet you. And so when my wife and daughter fell asleep, I ran out and got offered a job and accepted on the spot.
0: And were you in Cincinnati? No, Columbus. Columbus. But you were already in Columbus. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I'd been in Columbus about eight years
0: at that point, nine years. Got it. Got it. So you didn't have to have a move. I moved my wife when she was six months pregnant with our first baby on the name of advancing the career, right? So you end up with a company in Columbus and then walk me from Columbus to here. I'll tell you about my first day.
1: So I came up to Cleveland and I... In my mind, I thought, you know, these guys know I've never run an office. I've never started an office. I've never run a business. I know how to build buildings. So they've got to know this, right? I mean, we've been talking for four months. What I expected was I'm going to go to Cleveland and we're going to have a month, month, two-month, three-month crash course in how to start a business or how to start an office. And so the crash course was actually about five minutes. I went into Bruce Higley's office and he was welcome to the company. And he slid a performer in front of me and said, this is what we'd like you to do over the next five years. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Waiting for the next, yeah, okay, you know? And he said, and by the way, there's an office down there you can use for the next week, you know, as you kind of figure out where you're gonna go. So I took this performer and I sat in this office and I stared at it like, oh no.
0: What, 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 <laughs> what is... do I
1: do? So I pulled out, you know, the book of lists. They have them in Cleveland. They have them in Columbus. Yes, yes, yes. So I there's do. a list of the top 20 construction projects in that market in Columbus. So I took that list and I went down. I scratched off all the ones with the not out kind of work. Yeah. And that left about 10 of them. And I circled what I would need in year one to win in order to meet the performer. And I took that list back to Bruce and I said, if you want me to hit your performer, here's what I would need to do. Right. And I, I think your expectations are off. So he agreed and I put a business plan together. We started the office. I think the first year we did about ten million dollars. And in year five we did about fifty million. For a while it was really successful. Yeah. But a different kind of market. And ultimately
0: it didn't work out. It didn't work out. Did you close the office? I closed
1: the office, I want to say, about 10 years ago.
0: Did you leave Columbus to come up to Cleveland before you closed that? Yes. So
1: about five years in, Bruce approached me and said, look, in the next few years, would you be interested in moving to Cleveland and taking on a larger role? And I said, well, what's the role? And he said, well, it's either president or VP of Ops, one of the two. And I said, well, I would be interested in one of them, not so much the other one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he said, well, we're thinking you as president. I said, well, I could get on that. So wow. What year was that? That was probably 2005. So I'd been with the company four or five years. I was not 40 at that point, so I was probably mid-30s. Yeah.
0: So when you look back, I'm always big on what people are learning along their journey, you know, what their path is. And when you go back to that time and you first became the president, do you remember what you're thinking and feeling at the time when you realize I'm that guy now?
1: Well, I think I first thought, be careful what you wish for, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, the first day, there's this sense of, Oh, you know, it was at our old office. It was a huge office. And when sat down were three or four other presidents before me and sat down. And I'm looking around. I was like, man, this is pretty cool.
0: I got to the big yeah. time.
1: Then some reality set in. <laughs> you know, firstly, even though it was something I'd strive for, it was a very uncomfortable position for me. I didn't see myself as a president my personality and my character traits and that kind of thing, I it kind of probably goes back to being told you're never gonna get to college. Oh my God, it has to be there. So for a while I almost felt like a fraud sitting there. How did I end up here? And what I always kept coming back to was, but Bruce Higley thinks I can do it. And if Bruce thinks it, then it's gotta be true. So that was, you know, my
0: initial thoughts. I love that you said that. I even have a podcast on it called The Imposter Syndrome. (laughs) And I know it myself. You know, before I realized I was terminally unemployable and kept getting fired, I had those positions where I remember feeling that weird feeling like, do I really know what the hell I'm doing? The thing that I really like is when people admit it, you know, like. At the time, you used this idea, well, if I don't feel it, that's okay because somebody else does. And that brings us to Bruce. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i imagining you must have had an enormous amount of respect for him even Absolutely. back then. Yeah. So tell me about Bruce and your relationship and what that was like uh, having him as your boss. Was he a true mentor in, in some ways or... Just tell me. Yeah. So Bruce was in
1: some ways very difficult to work for because I wanted to make him proud and believe he had done the right thing by putting me in my job. So that created a level of pressure. And he had a way of looking at you with, you know, he was not a screamer or shouter and would never belittle anybody. But there were just certain times where you knew he didn't like that or he's not happy with that and so you know having not grown up with a father he was probably the most prominent male figure in my life Mm -hmm. he wasn't quite old enough to be my father he's probably a little bit too old to be my brother but we became incredibly good friends and I think I was good for him too because this is and was a very conservative company and appropriately so at times i suppose but today we needed to loosen up a little bit we needed to take some more risks and i think we needed to have a little more fun and i truly believe that i had some impact on his life because we would go out and have a glass of wine together i know he never did that with anybody before and you know i Send him an email. Could we have a strategic planning meeting this Friday at nine at three thirty at the Cleveland Chop House? And he knew exactly what that meant, and that's what we would do. But he taught me a lot about humility and about carrying yourself in a certain position. You know, when you, even though he was Bruce Higley, you would see him picking up trash outside the building in the mornings. When we had a flood in the vestibule. He was above his Bostonians in water and mopping water. I mean, that was just the kind of guy he was. Very philanthropic, very much about service, just an incredible and a great family man. So,
0: Was he a third generation Higley? Yes. Yeah. So are there any Higleys in the business now? Is there a fourth gen? Uh... No.
1: The Higley family still owns. A position in the company and so therefore maintains a couple of board seats so that is the involvement
0: the question that comes up for me i'm thinking of the story of your childhood and especially this headmaster is basically telling you forget it kid you know you don't have what it takes and that fuels you to get the fire to go and then you remember, the, or at least recognize that there might be some element of that, in how you handled feeling like an imposter with this new job, and you had somebody who believed in you. And you also had somebody who was actually helping to fill some roles, maybe, that my father might have. So he believed in you, and then he passed away, and, and there isn't another Higley coming on. How do you feel? Does that put a burden on you that you wouldn't necessarily share with people? Is there some level of responsibility? I know you, and I know you're that kind of guy. I probably know the answer to the question, but I kind of want to talk about it because when people at work, finding meaning and purpose has really become a huge thing. Humility also, in. Millennials got a bad rap. I've never heard that term used with necessarily a positive connotation. And I don't know what the next group coming up is. I don't know what we've named the 20 and 30-year-olds. But I kind of want to know a little bit about how this idea of legacy kind of works in a generational business with the name on the building, an amazing history in this community in Cleveland, how that affects you and how you feel about it.
1: Well, it's not a burden. It's something that I happily and gratefully take on, but it is an incredible stress. And it really impacts where I go. So, for example, I might say, I have an opportunity to hang it up today and go live on my desert island. And I suppose if I worked for a, large public company, I might do that. But I have an obligation here that goes beyond the money I make or the things I might even want to do my own life sometimes. And the obligation is to the employees of the company, to the next generation of leadership and to the legacy that is the Higley name. So it does have that stress and that weight. But what it also does, it makes life pretty damn simple because I'm not getting told you have to open 10 offices a year or you need to get X returns or cut overhead by I know what my job is. It's to create that legacy, and there are ways to do it and probably ways not to do it. The gift that Bruce left me with is his own actions. Every day, and I sincerely mean this, Every day, at least once a day, I find myself asking, What would Bruce do? Oh, man. (laughs) And and I've got to tell you, it makes decision making so easy. We had a situation with somebody from an HR standpoint recently that had gone through, let's see, some some substance abuse problems and was going to have to take a three month leave of absence unpaid. And the question was, or the statement was, we are not legally obligated to pay for their health care. Uh, right. Well, pay for their health care. Health care, okay. And so I was asked, should we cut them off the health care? It's going to save us $17,000 a year. And I sat in my office and said, what would Bruce do in this case? Would he cut the legs out from somebody who's already in a tough place? So he said, no, we're going to continue to pay them. And those kind of situations happen almost every day, you know.
0: Yeah, wow. I thought that would cause you to tear up, and it actually caused me to tear up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it causes me to smile because, again, it it's what helps me. Well, you know, it made me tear up because I know the time I had to get to know Bruce, you know, it was a good two years, plus or minus, that we worked together. And the three of us had many times where we were coaching. We were doing coaching. Felt like I was honored to be brought into the relationship that you guys had and was privy to those kinds of conversations. So I do feel like I know what that relationship was. And for you to bring that back, it's just powerful to me. I also made me think of this what a great way to think about my own life or anybody to think about their life. You know, when you talk about what will people say about me when I'm gone, I think that would be a cool thing to have someone say, I wonder what Kevin would do. Like, was I that kind of model that people looked up to me that way? There's a beautiful lesson here too about the humility piece because I don't know if that's teachable. It's more lived by example when you know it, when you see it, right? He showed you, yeah. standing there in his dress clothes, yeah. ankles in the water, mopping up. I mean, I think that's a powerful way to walk. Is there anything that else you would like to say and calling back some of his lessons that you're applying or just ways of remembering him, honoring him? Well, one of the things I really remember about
1: Bruce was... Early in my tenure with Higley, you know, I was probably a year or two years in, and I had a project that was a significant loss, million and a half dollars. And it tore me up. My stomach was in knots. And uh, you know, here I am working 80 hours a week and trying to prove myself. And, and one way to measure is, The bottom line, right? So I remember Friday reporting by phone to the Cleveland office of how we'd done that quarter, and it was really bad, and reported that we might lose some more because we need to meet our obligations to our client. Which the first thing that I noticed was it was absolutely you got to do whatever it takes. That means two million dollars. You got to do what you got to do to meet the obligations. Meet the obligation, client, yeah. But the second thing I remember is getting a call from him about an hour and a half later after I'd left the office. again, totally stressed out and him calling and telling me it was okay. And, hey, we're in this for the long haul. You know, you made some mistakes, but you did the right thing and, you know, continuing to do what we're supposed to do. And that had a huge impression on me and how I treat my reports now when things don't go well. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's something absolutely powerful about being able to reassure someone Uh and the acceptance that mistakes can happen. Uh We're gonna continue to do the right thing. Uh It gives you a lot of confidence. I always talk to people and say, you're allowed to make
1: good decisions that are wrong. You're not allowed to make bad decisions that are wrong. So in other words, if you make it for the right reasons, with the right intent, with good logic. That doesn't mean it's going to work, but it's founded in something. If you do it because you don't care, because you're
0: lazy, because you're trying to hurt
1: the company, that's a whole different thing.
0: Yeah. I love when people connect with their learning lessons. And so here's Bruce as an example. Do you have any that you uh, remember from your mom that you sort of still you still from maybe you're bringing them to your kids there's a few i learned from her that i probably don't want to repeat okay that works <laughs> that's negative learning every parent goes yeah. i know one thing i'm never going to do <laughs> you know i what i learned from my mother was really just strength
1: and you know there are times where perhaps i might get down on myself or think i can't do this or i can't do that and I just look back at what my mother did and it's just incredible how hard she worked and she was always at work at 6 in the morning and home at 6 yeah. at night and she's just an incredible incredible person so it's hard for me to pick out one thing but it's just in general the dedication yeah just dedication to you know whatever about she was doing and part of it was raising me
0: yeah well i can tell you from my time knowing you for the last decade she did a pretty good job did a pretty good job because there's a lot about you that came from your struggles but also Mm -hmm. came from having this mother who would do anything for you. I would even shout this out in general. I have a pretty strong and healthy respect for any single mother because my wife Mary was a single mom, and I've seen her Mm -hmm. and her commitment and what she went through and understood that. And I think, unfortunately, there's probably quite a— healthy population of women who are single and raising their kids on their own. So, ah, well, at least give them a uh, prop for that. So kind of coming down to the end of the time I like to spend, I like the podcast to be digestible. My signature question that I try to ask every guest is, so you know where you are now, and how old are you now? 51. 51. Halftime, right in the middle. You're going to make it to be 100, <laughs> I have no doubt. So if you turn around and look down the path and you see your 23-year-old, Gareth Vaughn, and you were able to give advice to him back then from this place where you are now, knowing what you know now, what would you tell him? I would probably say be less cocky and be more confident. So it's interesting, less cocky and more confident. Yeah. Where's the line between well, cocky and confident?
1: You know to me, cocky is arrogance without any substance. Okay. Confidence really comes from believing in that you have it. And when I was twenty one or twenty three, I might outwardly express that I'm you know this great thing uh, without believing it internally and without having any of the substance. but I think, If I look back, I was smarter than I thought I was and better than I thought I was if I could have just transferred that energy into confidence and maybe some risk-taking and, you know, those kind of things. Then I might have accelerated my career. Uh, Although, you know, some would say, well, you know, you did it pretty quickly anyway. But the other thing that I would definitely tell myself at 23, which I definitely didn't have, was purpose and was that vision for who I wanted to be. Oh, yeah. My purpose and vision at 23 was make as much money as I can. That purpose and vision did not come until I'd had kids and until I'd fallen down a bunch of times.
0: Wow. This is a tremendous place to wrap this up because my last guest was a guy named Mike Swiger who is the director of True Freedom Ministries Prison Ministry. And on that podcast, Mike Point Blank said, don't wait to answer the question, who am I and why am I here? The sooner you get in touch with that, that sense of purpose, the better it gets You used to use a phrase when we were working together about the North Star, you know, having a star. And even in that podcast, Mike said, you know what? If you don't have a target, you're pretty much never going to hit it. (laughs) So, well, Gareth, my friend, thank you so much. If people want to just go look at A.M. Higley, what's the website address? Uh, It's www.amhigley.com.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: And I encourage anyone who wants to see the spectacular architecture and the things that the company does, they'll take a dream and a design in the mind and the heart and the creativity of an architect and actually do the work of turning it into the reality. It is powerful, and the portfolio in there is fantastic. I'd also confirm, if you haven't figured it out by now, if you're looking for an outstanding place to work. This would be one of those places. And it'd be great here. So this'll wrap us up for another episode. Thanks to you, Gareth, for your time with me. And I ask you to take a look at the website. It's jkevinmacy.com. You'll find information about me, and you'll also find the entire podcast list. And the podcast is available on all the platforms. You can also find it at sheerclarity.com. And we'll talk to you again next time with another great guest. I know.